Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during its centennial season the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks you love while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's episode, I'm talking about how overcrowded campgrounds have helped fuel the rise of private campsites in Oregon and across the West with the founder and CEO of the website HipCamp. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, so in today's episode, I am going to start off a little bit differently with a quick story. Now, don't worry, it's a pretty short one. So the other day I found myself in a small room where the Lynn County Board of Commissioners were holding their monthly meeting. Now it was a typically bland meeting, the way local government meetings typically are, until some questions came up about recent incidents at Sunnyside Campground, uh, which is a campground located on Foster Lake, southeast of Albany. The Lynn County Parks and Recreation Director, who got called to the stage to answer on this, is a guy named Brian Carroll. And so he gets the questions about these incidents. He kind of shakes his head, takes a deep breath, and proceeds to explain that this summer, people have literally been fighting over campsites there, like actual violence. Again, over a campsite. I mean, fisticuffs were thrown at least once, but conflict has been a regular problem there. Beyond that, he said, people have resorted to actually snatching the little cards off campsites that have been reserved by someone else and simply claiming the site for themselves, like pirate style. Which I gotta be honest, it never occurred to me to just get frustrated that I can't find a campsite, go up to one of the reserved ones, take the ticket and just claim it for myself. I can't imagine how awkward that gets when the person who reserved the site actually shows up only to see like a skull and crossbones sitting over the site they paid for. But I guess that helps explain the fights. Now, there's a lot going on here and a lot more details than it can explain this particular situation. And in fact, we're currently reporting a story on it. But I bring it up because it's a good illustration of the strain Oregon's campgrounds are under from the great outdoors boom. It's a problem that's been building for over a decade, but has been supercharged the last two to three pandemic years. We've talked about it more than once on this podcast about people waking up at the crack of dawn to reserve a campsite for a date six months in the future. We've talked about how even gigantic campgrounds on the Oregon coast are sold out almost every single day during the summer, even midweek. We've also talked about the strain that it takes on everyone from exhausted rangers to stressed out campers. 
as Oregon's population keeps growing, but the number of campsites doesn't. So we've been over the problem, but one of the more interesting solutions has been the rise of private campgrounds. Now, normally this is a podcast all about public lands and I don't propose to change that. But my guest today has created a rapidly growing business by convincing people like farmers, ranchers, and just folks with a little property to set up their own backyard campsites. In fact, she's actively recruited landowners in areas where demand is high, but supply is short, including places like Bend, the Oregon coast, the Mount Hood and Portland area. So without further preamble, here's a conversation I had with Hip Camp founder and CEO Alyssa Ravasio a few weeks ago. We talked about Hip Camp itself, but also about the conditions that have led to the need for some outside the box ideas. So here's that interview. All right, well, joining us today to talk about the rise of campsites on private land and how they work. I'm joined by Alyssa Ravasio, the founder and CEO of Hip Camp. Hey, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. So why don't you start out by, in really simple terms, describing exactly what Hip Camp is and who might want to use it? Absolutely. Hip Camp is the best and, I would argue, simplest way to get outside um, and really focused on outdoor stays. So everything from a simple tent site all the way to really convenient sites for your RVs, as well as structures. So think tree houses, yurts, and cabins. Um, and I think it's really something that could be used by just about anyone who's interested in, in spending the night under the stars. We've got a great product that makes it really simple to find the outdoor stay that's you know really going to be a good fit for you and your family and, and what's most important to you. In the simplest terms, is this uh, a camping version of Airbnb or, uh, you know, vacation rentals? Would you describe it that way or is it something that is pretty different? I think it's pretty different. You know, there's there's a lot of similarity with other sharing economy companies and that we are, you know, creating this this new space and this new kind of behavior for people who can, you know, we focus a lot on ranchers and farmers and these are people who have beautiful land. Um, and so we are creating an opportunity for them that previously might not have been there to open up their land, help people get outside and connect with nature, and then earn some, you know, good income in the meantime. So I think that's where a lot of the similarities lie. It is a sharing economy type of business. I think on the other side, though, you know, we're an outdoors company first and foremost. Um, I spent a lot of time with the leaders in the outdoor industry and just love how much of a focus there is on mission, I would say, and impact. I think the outdoors is just this incredible vehicle for economic development, uh, for mental health, physical health, wellness. And so I think we're very different in that we are an, an outdoors company, first and foremost. What are the big differences between a campsite that you'll find on Hip Camp compared to one that you'd say find at like South Beach State Park or, you know, a classic kind of forest service campground on the Oregon coast? Like what are the what are the main differences? Yeah, I think the, the, the easiest way to, to summarize it is privacy. Um, and then a more unique type of outdoor stay. So a lot of the hip camps do have only a single site on their on their property. Others have, you know, a handful. And so you are getting to stay somewhere with, you know, for those of you who have backpacked, it's kind of like the backcountry sometimes. You're like, <laughs> find more 
more of that privacy and solitude, um, less of the communal aspect of campgrounds quite often, but then still really easily accessible. So, you know, the accessibility of the front country and, and the privacy of the back country is, is something that we, we aim for in general. And then I say also just the diversity of experience. I mean, I love state parks. I grew up camping at state parks. By the way, you actually can find all the state parks on Hip Camp. So we do view public land as just really this incredibly important um, infrastructure and backbone that we're building on top of. But I also really like staying places that are a little different. And sometimes that might look like actually one of my favorite hip camps in the whole world is is in Oregon down on the on the southern border. And they've got outdoor bathtubs, a sauna, <laughs> a tea room. It's called Cedar Bloom. It's beautiful. And so, you know, there's just there's this there's this element of, again, it's the sharing economy. So these are individuals creating the outdoor experience of their dreams and then sharing it with you. And it turns out there's a lot of imagination out there and a lot of different ways to enjoy the outdoors. And I do want to get back to the different types of sites that you feature because they're like you mentioned, there's some really fun options. But one thing I wanted to do uh, early on in this talk was jump back in time a little bit to the backstory of Hip Camp. It's really interesting because it kind of relates to the issues with camping that we're seeing on public lands right now. So do you mind sharing why you started the company originally, kind of the original vision and then how it evolved? I was one of the lucky ones. I, I got to grow up camping a lot. It was something my family um, really prioritized many times a year. I think it was really an affordable way to get all three of us and one of three kids, all of us on a vacation. So, you know, really grateful for, for that growing up. And I would say, you know, for me, when I started trying to book campsites for myself and for my friends, I was just pretty horrified at how difficult it was and intimidating. Like, I just was like, you know, I feel like I'm a reasonably smart individual, pretty good at research and like getting things done. But like booking a campsite was enough to make me want to give up. You know, I was like, wait a minute, how many different websites do I have to manage? And oh my gosh, I didn't do this seven months ago. So now I'm I'm totally hosed. And, and there was one trip in particular that I spent, you know, genuinely more than half a day. Like we're talking five hours of like dedicated computer time to try to figure out a good a good spot to go. Eventually found a campground that didn't take bookings because I hadn't decided that I wanted to do this six months ago. And finally arrived at a beautiful California State Park called Andrew Malera and Big Sur and realized that despite all my hours of research, I had failed to learn what for me would have been the most valuable fact about this campground, which was that it had an amazing surf break right in front of the campsites. And I had left my surfboard at home and had this whole experience of being like, I tried so hard and I still didn't learn about this campground and how to have, you know, what I, the, the amazing outdoor experience I, I really wanted to have while I was there. And so it was still a great trip, but driving home just had this moment of realizing that one, getting outside is really, really too hard. <laughs> and, and two, when I go outside, I just feel so much better. I just feel so much clearer on what matters to me, what doesn't. I feel healthier. I feel this new energy and revitalization in my my relationships, the people I care about the most in my life. And I was like, everyone should get to access this and it shouldn't feel so hard or intimidating. So that was really the original like seed of the company. We say it started with a wave as a result. And it really was just about public campgrounds to start. So we put all the public campgrounds on a single map, added really good structured data, common questions everybody has, you know, does this campground have a shower? Can I bring my dog? Stuff like that. And what we learned by building this initial product, which was, it was pretty cool. You know, people really liked the product, but what we kept hearing was everything's booked up. And so your website's fun to look at, but I'm not actually getting outside or, you know, even worse, hey, 
because you're now featuring this campground that I love, I've noticed an increase in visitation. I think I'd like Hip Camp to take it down. Like, I don't need mm-hmm. you to like help people discover this spot, please. <laughs> and so it was a really, you know, existential moment for the company and as a founder to say, I have this mission. I want to get more people outside. And yet the existing infrastructure doesn't seem able to support it. And eventually decided the only way to fulfill our mission was going to be to create new places to get outside. And that's where private land came in. Yeah. And so it sounded like eventually you realized there's more demand for public campsites than the spaces that are actually available, correct? So you were, how, how were you seeing that transpire? Was it just everything being booked up? Was it first come sites like having people getting in fist fights for like the last campsite? Like what were you noticing that made you realize maybe I want to try something different? Yeah, I think it was a combination of things being booked up, especially the good sites, right? They're all they're all booked up six months in advance. I think we've all heard and experienced the stories of like, you got to set your alarm for 6 a.m. on January 2nd, or you're not going to get your campsites for July 4th. So that, that was a big part of it. I think also we, we had in many cases access to the data about what was getting booked at the parks. And so I would actually spend a lot of time going through that data and finding a campground that wasn't as booked up and putting it on the homepage. And then we'd get hate mail. <laughs> we were like, take that down. It's like the last campground that hasn't been blown up on Instagram yet. And so I think those were the two big things that I really noticed as making it clear there were a lot more people who want to get outside, especially on good, high quality campsites, than there were places to go, which is, again, what led us to this idea. Well, how did you get started doing it? I mean, did you literally like just pick up the phone and start calling like a cranberry farmer outside of Bandon? No, yeah. I mean, you pretty much nailed it. I had a background in sales. And so we just started calling people. Actually, the very first hip camp is it was in California. So where I'm based and it was actually through a recommendation from my dad. And he was like, oh, you know, this store where I used to take you to get fly fishing gear. I I think they actually work with some landowners to offer access for fly fishing. And so maybe those people would want to offer camping as well. And so we literally just like called these people and, and got in touch and I think over time refined our offerings. One of the biggest moments there was offering a full suite of liability insurance products. So these hosts don't have to worry about what happens on their land. That's kind of been the biggest barrier historically. So many people have thought before hip camp, like, wow, it'd be great to let people come camp here or hike here or fish here, but they're worried about liability. So like solving that problem has been a huge milestone for the company. And and over time now, what we've seen is especially in markets like Oregon, where hip camp has a pretty good presence, now the landowners come to us because now they hear from their friends, hey, this is a way I was able to earn an extra 10000 50000 100000 a year while maintaining my values, while supporting my farm, while building awareness of this lifestyle that I think is so important around, you know, taking good care of the land and leaving it better than I found it. And so increasingly they find us now, but whenever we expand somewhere new, it is just pick up the phone and do the hard work of, of reaching out and, and building relationships. And what is the, I'm curious what the response is, because, you know, I live in rural Oregon and I live around a lot of farmers and they're, they're an awesome group, often skeptical. So, I mean, what was your, what was the response that you got immediately? Was there a lot of interest or did you kind of have to talk them into it? Yeah. I mean, look, it's a big lifestyle decision for someone to choose to take a place that's generally been an incredibly private spot for their family and, and consider letting members of, of the hip camp community come stay there on, on any given Friday. Like that's a big deal. I think the biggest response we got that kind of su- surprised me, but I think has really shaped a lot of how we've built the company is like, well, who are these people? And I'm like, oh, well, they want to get outside. You know, they're good people. They're outdoors people. And so our value proposition to these landowners, to put it very simply, is we have this community of people who are good people 
who understand that they need to respect your land and are happy to pay for the opportunity to spend some time on it. And so to build a culture that actually can deliver on that promise is, is a really interesting challenge, I think, through a lot as, as our founder. For example, um, you know, as much as we all love some good whiskey around the campfire, you're not going to see us partnering with a whiskey company, right? We're not going to be promoting this like party outdoors vibe, even if there's plenty of times where we enjoy that personally, because we don't want to attract that type of mindset to the platform, right? We really want people to know you can have fun, you can spend good time with your family and friends, but you have to be respectful. You can't look at this as like a, a big party destination. So it really, you know, listening to our landowners and, and shaping our company and our policies and our brand and our marketing around what's going to work for them has, has always been a huge part of how we've built the company. I'm kind of curious now about how the users have kind of found HipCamp because I'll I'll just give you a real quick example of my experience. You know, like I wanted to bring my family out to go camping outside Newport and then we were going to do some surfing out there. Literally every state park campsite was booked like the yeah. entire time. And so I, I remember actually talking to you for a different story and I was like, okay, well, I should check out HipCamp. And sure enough, there was like three of the little private campsites in the area, one of them was open. And so we were able to get that. I mean, is that sort of nice. what you're, what you're shooting for? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think like there's different ways people hear about hip camp. A common one is everything else is booked. I'm totally hosed. What can I do? And you start talking to friends or Googling and you could find us. And that's great. We'd love to be the brand that helps you get outside when you're, you're worried. Otherwise you, you might not be able to, but I think increasingly what we're also seeing is because what we're offering is different. And in many cases is offering people access to destinations that aren't otherwise places they could go, that that's why people are coming to us. You know, word of mouth, people telling each other about hip camp by far and away is the biggest way we grow. Going to the other side of the coin from the private landowner perspective, is it a simple process for someone to say, hmm, you know, I've got this land, it's got some cool features, I've got a creek or maybe an ocean view, and I, you know, I'm thinking about this. Is it complex to get to that end point? Is there a lot of red tape you have to navigate, or is it a pretty straightforward process at this point? I think it depends on the individual and where you are and where your family is or whoever else you're on the land with. So. Again, it's a big decision. I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's a big decision to say, hey, we want to open up this ranch to members of the hip camp community. That's a big moment. And so if it's just you, for sure, that might be an easy decision. But more often than not, there's other people who live on the land. And, you know, we hear lots about dinner time conversations around the table talking about the trade-offs and, of course, the money and, and being able to offset property taxes. And in many cases, the rising cost of land ownership, especially in the face of forest fires and, and everything we're seeing happening with the climate, it's a pretty attractive option. Um, the trade-off being there's going to be people here sometimes. And do we like that? And how are we going to manage it? So I would say that's some of the most complex stuff that actually takes the longest is really making sure that everyone who lives on the land is aligned with and excited for this opportunity. In terms of like once you know you want to do this, I would say getting set up is really easy. We've seen hosts go through the sign-up process in 15 minutes. We've got a team sitting and waiting for questions that can help you with photos and setting up your profile. So from a tech and platform side, I think we've invested a lot to make that pretty accessible. And then depending on where you live, there may or may not be regulatory considerations to take in mind. It's very different in different jurisdictions, but the long and short of it is you should you know, get familiar with what the code is in your area. And in many cases, depending on, you know, your parcel size or your zoning it might be totally fine, or it might be a situation that the elected officials haven't thought about. It's a new type of land use that perhaps hasn't been taken into account. And so in many cases, we are collaborating with local governments in those situations to make it 
safe and affordable for more people to get outside. And again, in many cases, it's already totally fine. So it's just kind of a bit of a research process. So do you set it up with any specific criteria? I mean, do you have a team that says, well, we want to make sure you have a driveway that's this long or the access road is is this, or is it largely in the hands of the landowner and kind of their vision for it? So is it both? Is it more on the landowner? Like how when it actually gets set up, how does that usually go? Yeah, we, we definitely have a set of standards that are kind of our, our criteria for listing. Um, and those are publicly accessible at hipcamp.com forward slash hood standards. So we do enforce those and like really make sure we get people familiar with them. And, you know, it's basic stuff, like kind of like minimum parcel size. We're not trying to support people in like, you know, suburban areas, hosting people in their backyard, like that's not okay. And so, you know, it's really about being clear on what type of outdoor activity we're looking to support. But then in terms of how people set up the site, we're pretty supportive of these landowners who, again, they're smart entrepreneurs, right? They're, they're looking at their business in general, about 80% of them are running a different business on the land as well, farms or ranches or something like that. So, you know, they're, they're going to look at the investment and say, you know what, it is worth really building out a full set of picnic tables and, and showers or it's not. And so we, we tend to be more supportive and defer to the host as the entrepreneur in those cases. Yeah, because it is ultimately kind of a capitalistic thing. Like the nicer you make your the the campground on your land, you know, the more you can charge for it. Like if you've got a clawfoot tub, looking mm-hmm. a, a cool vista or something, like that's worth more. You know, people will pay more for that. So there's some incentive there as well, huh? Definitely. One of our favorite patterns I see on the site is people join and, you know, more often than not, they don't want to invest a lot up front. And we really respect that, right? We want to make sure it's just a good fit for everybody. And so maybe they start with just a simple RV site, like nothing else going on. Got to be a self-contained vehicle, nice view, but that's it. And then they start making money and they're like, wait a minute, let me build another site or let me add some picnic tables or to your point, a clawfoot tub, one of my favorite hip camp amenities. And it does kind of increase their ability to earn over time. And so we do see hosts, you know, build out their hip camps more over time with that income. Also importantly, and something we're really passionate about. We also see hosts use that money to better steward their land. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The last two years have been tough on the beaches and trails of the Tillamook Coast. With more people flocking to the area in search of outdoor activities comes a spike in the appearance of trash along roads, trails, and beaches. Be part of the solution and make a point at helping curb this problem. Dispose of your trash in designated receptacles and practice leave no trace visitation. Make it a habit to bring a trash bag along in your hike or beach walk and pick up at least three pieces of trash along your way. It may seem like a drop in the bucket, but every little bit makes a difference. Learn more about how you can help by visiting www.tillamookcoast.com and downloading the Tillamook Coast Pledge. You can help preserve the legacy of beautiful trails and beaches for generations to come. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At AFRC, we value protecting Oregon's forests and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. Thank you.
changing gears uh, just a little bit, you know, I've written and reported a lot about the rapid growth of outdoor recreation in Oregon and across the West, how it's kind of skyrocketed since the pandemic and demand for campsites has gotten even tighter um, than it was before. Have you seen that spillover onto hip camp or are you seeing a similar trend in that you're seeing like a really quickly rising number of people or sites? Like where, where's the growth going both on the public land and on uh, hip camp? You're sharing the lead there already. We're seeing just tremendous growth over the last couple of years here in Oregon and the West more generally. So you're looking at Oregon Coast, Bend, all kind of markets like that are growing. I think in the last two or three years, you're looking at 500, maybe 600% growth on hip camp in particular. And so it's just been a tremendous accelerator for the business. And again, that that's hard for the existing infrastructure to scale up that quickly. And so we're really focused on supporting responsible recreation. We're big, big members of that coalition. And while growth is great, we want to make sure it's happening, you know, in the right places and at the right time. Yeah, because one thing that was interesting when we talked before was part of that story was how like the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department has tried to open like three campgrounds on the coast over the past like 15 years. And all three of them got shot down by local opposition. Like it's really hard to build new campgrounds at this point. And so I was just fascinated by the idea of sort of like doing it a different way. I guess if, if you totally. know what I'm saying. Yeah, and this is something, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate for this. Like, I think, again, I think campgrounds, traditional campgrounds, let's say, that's where I grew up camping. They're amazing. There's like a huge, I remember being a little kid and like how incredible it was to have like a hundred other kids all on the same loop that you could like, you know, that's, that's awesome, right? But I think what we're seeing, especially as a lot of, you know, the more desirable outdoor destinations are, especially with what's happened with remote work and COVID, becoming places people also want to live which is complicated, a big campground does have a big impact. Whereas, you know, two sites or three sites on this 500 acre ranch that someone has, like not so much. And so I think this idea is like, how do we distribute impact? How do we get more people outside while still being respectful of the current ways people are living and and enjoying their local communities is a big, a big question for, for everybody to be asking themselves. Yeah. So maybe you'd even argue that like a better way is spreading people out on some of these smaller private campgrounds instead of these massive city campgrounds and and growing them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the specific location and community, but I think it's a really important alternative. And not just, by the way, for the like specific destination where people stay. But if you look at outdoor recreation more generally, I think because we've not had great tools for discovery, there tend to be these certain hotspots that like everybody wants to go to all at the same time and we're really passionate about saying cool like we know you really want to go to bend and bend is amazing and we love bend too but have you considered this valley right over here that actually has like amazing recreation as well and like maybe you've never heard of it because there isn't a huge state park there or something but it actually is super beautiful and can offer really similar recreation opportunities that kind of distribution of, of outdoor recreation, I think one is better for the ecology, right? Like if you go to Yosemite today, I love Yosemite, but man, and they're doing a great job managing the demand, don't get me wrong, but it's so developed at this point, right? There's so much that they've had to build up to support that much demand. And so I think if instead we look at like distributing it, getting people excited about new places that can be better for the ecosystems and then, you know, nice benefit to the rural economies too. Like outdoor recreation is a really powerful vehicle for economies. I think Oregon does an incredible job at this. And a nice way to like provide income and jobs without necessarily compromising on on the ecosystem and the health of our lands and waters. Yeah. And, you know, you answered this a, a little bit, but when you look at it, at hotspots, um, you know, you mentioned yeah. Bend, but what are the other areas that you're seeing a lot of demand and that maybe you're looking to, you know, add 
campsites and like what are like, what are the main areas in Oregon that you, you've looked at for that? Yeah, I mean, definitely in Oregon, a lot of it's about Bend, as we talked about, and the coast. People want to be on the, they want to be on the ocean, they want to be on the rivers. Ideally, they want to be on the rivers right where they meet the ocean, right? That's kind of the, the ideal spots to be. And then, of course, uh, the Hood River and, and kind of all the incredible recreation opportunities that area provides are really important as well. Gotcha. So if you're a farmer living in, in some of those areas, like there's a, a decent chance that you might get a, a phone call from Hip Camp, huh? Yeah, probably. Probably for sure. I mean, there's so Oregon has so much to offer in terms of outdoor recreation. It's also a state where we see a lot of people like kind of traveling into and out of on road trips. And so to be honest, there's kind of these hotspots we're seeing emerge, you know, all all over the state right now. It's very cool. All right. Well, let's jump back to the uh, the type of sites you'll find on Hip Camp, because, again, that's one of the things that sticks out to me and that you've mentioned that you'll find just different kinds of places. Like I remember one that was like kind of, I think it was like a organic chicken farm or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's like a tent site there. And then there's another that's like a, a cliff above the Oregon coast, but it's kind of like somebody's backyard. And then, and then there's like the fancier yurts with like satin sheets and all, you know, really glamping kind of thing. So it seems all over the place, but that's kind of the idea, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole the whole founding idea of Hip Camp is about getting more people outside. And I think that's led to us really focusing on building what feels like a an inclusive experience where hopefully there's something for everyone, right? We don't take a hard line and say, hey, you've got to be comfortable not showering for three days and like packing in all your food and water or something like that. And so I think, you know, having a large variety of, of options is a really central part to how we fulfill our mission. Um, We are excited, I should say, over the next year or so to be building out better ways for you to peruse these different opportunities that are perhaps a bit easier for you to understand, like what's most important to you and and the different types of places you might want to get outside. So some, some good improvements there coming, but Yes, having lots of different types of ways to get outside is pretty central and core to the mission. I love, you know, one of our company values is that diversity is a strength. And I think you can see that from our microbiomes to our agriculture to our you know offerings on hip camp and our team um and so really having that through line is is important to us well on that note do you have you know you mentioned one place on the border of oregon and california but any other like favorite sites that you've visited been involved with that speak to that kind of unique nature yeah there's a few i would call out there's a llama ranch that i really adore (laughs) that we i think they like joined one of our all hands at one point too and like showed us about llamas it's called it's tent camping on the llama pasture it's just outside of portland as well which is really convenient i think to have something kind of within that hour hour and a half radius so that's amazing it's 50 acres there's plenty of places to like go play in the woods and see cute llamas really fun for kids i think something (laughs) we've really learned is just like how much children adore animals it's like very very cool to see. And then another one I'd call out, this one's actually pretty close to, to Salem, the tree house in the valley. That's just a beautiful tree house, gorgeous views. I think every, you know, every kid dreams of dreaming in a tree, sleeping in a tree house. And I think for a lot of adults, it's like a very cool way to reconnect with your, your childhood dreams as well. Um, they've also won a couple great awards on the platform. So those are a, a couple I'd call out, but there's so many. <laughs> Llamas and treehouses is a good place to start, though. That's a that's totally. a fun combination. So I imagine there's also some fun stories from landowners who who turn the property. So any landowner stories that you can share that are illustrative of the experience or that that stick out to you? Yeah, you know, there's one story that comes to mind. It was it's a cider farm, and they kind of were like uncertain about if they wanted people to come stay with them or not, and so they started doing glamping on hip cam, so like canvas tent and stuff. It's really cool, and 
it kind of like exploded, right? Like word got out. I mean, I think like for most people when you hear, hmm, do I want to go glamp on like a beautiful cider farm? Like, yeah, yes, yes, I do. And so I think having that opportunity just really was an accelerant for the cidery and for all of the things they offer. So whether that was glamping or taking a farm tour, buying the local cider, buying the produce, buying the honey. Um, it just really kind of brought a ton of people out and, and kind of transformed how they run their business. And then I have one more actually that came to mind. There's an amazing host named David. He is outside Bend, as we've talked about, and he he's a veteran. And part of his his dream post, post-war was to really create a place where people could heal and connect with nature. And he managed to buy this property, I think a, a couple decades ago, it's like in the middle of the national forest, like way, way, way out there. Just one of those little inholdings. So it's like a, a smaller mm-hmm. parcel, but surrounded by, you know, many, many thousands of acres, tens of thousands of acres of national forest. And he built these gurs on it. He's traveled a lot. He's like a world kayaker and has traveled and kayaked on like incredibly remote rivers. And on one of them in Mongolia, he met these gur makers, which a gur, if you're not familiar, it's like a yurt but a Mongolian style, a bit lower and and wider and, and, you know, really built for like incredibly harsh weather conditions and also easy to pack up and move. And so he's built these gurs in the middle of this inholding and we actually backcountry skied into them, which is so cool. Um, It's called Experience Heaven, the hip camp. Um, And they're open in the summer as well for some tent camping and the gurs are there as well. And I just thought it was so beautiful. This veteran who'd done, you know, this incredible service to our country and really had been through a lot of hard things saying, you know, what I want to do is create a space for people to heal and connect with the land and, and to be able to fulfill that dream and see it and be part of it. It's like the coolest thing ever. So, well, it's cool too, that you actually have winter like in, in snow based ones, uh, oh, yeah. with, like, you know, the classic summer. I mean, do you have a lot of winter, uh, hip camps as well that like, yeah, you know, not totally. just are open during the winter, but like kind of featured the, a winter experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, look, it's, let's be honest. If we look at the outdoor industry, the amount of people who want to go sleep outside when there's snow on the ground is a lot smaller than the number of people who would like to camp outside when it's sunny and warm. But for the people who are tough enough and brave enough to get out in the snow, we do have some incredible backcountry ski huts and gurus you can ski into or snowshoe into. So that that's something we, we, we love to offer, although it is to a much smaller audience, I would say. Well, in the same way that uh, the campsites with Hip Camp are different, the prices look you know, they're kind of all over the place too. Like I've seen as low as like 15 or even 25 bucks. Uh, and then on the high side, a couple hundred dollars per night. So where do the majority of them land? Do you want them to land in a, in a certain area price wise? Yeah. Like we, we want things to be affordable and accessible to people. And we also want our hosts to like be able to charge an amount that makes all the hard work they do feel worth it to them. So it's a bit of a balance. We don't take a firm line there in, in any way. We, we kind of let the market sort itself out a bit. I think that's one of the like most powerful parts of having having a marketplace, right? Is, is you know, people learn, they charge too much, people don't book them. <laughs> they so, charge too little, lots of people come and the work doesn't feel <laughs> worth it. So we do see lots of our hosts move and change prices around quite a bit. And I would say in general, you know, depends on the type of site, but a basic tent site or RV site, you know, somewhere between 25 and maybe 50 or 75 if it's like a really beautiful private spot and then structures like the gurs or tree houses those tend to be closer to 100 maybe 200 if it's got really special amenities or experience so it tends to be where things land and it does depend also like on the location right if you're a tree house within 45 minutes of portland that's different than if you're in a more remote area that just less people are going to be traveling to so supply and demand 
Well, so to wrap up here, uh, what do you see as the the future of, you know, these kind of private campsites? Like, do you think the outdoor boom continues and the demand just keeps going and going and going? Do you think there's a plateau coming? I, I guess, what do you what do you see over the next two to five years? Yeah, you know, I think as everyone got vaccinated or, or started feeling safer, just kind of doing all the things in life that they couldn't do during COVID or chose not to do during like the, the most intense part of COVID. I do think we're seeing a bit of a leveling off right now. I think people are starting to go back out to dinners and, and, and fly places and, and do all these things that for the last couple of years have felt harder for people. So we're still seeing a lot more demand for the outdoors than we were before the pandemic which is very interesting. But I think what we'll see now and moving forward is a bit of a reversion to the trend that we saw before COVID. And the trend we saw before COVID was a steady and pretty meaningful increase. We're talking, you know, five mm -hmm. to 10% a year and people looking to get outside. I mean, I think that's going to keep going. I mean, I think two, two to five years, easy, but I think, you know, a hundred years, I think that's going to keep going because <laughs> if you look at how much time we all spend on on tech now, especially, right, I would really point to just how much screen time so many of us have every day. You know, people need a counterbalance to that. They want to get offline. They want to spend time with the people who matter most without all the interruptions of emails and the notifications and those little red numbers on your phone that just keep poking at you. And I think that's just going to keep going. So I think 100 years from now, there is dramatically more demand for the outdoors than there is today. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because it's there's it's been framed as almost like the pandemic was like this, like one time spike or this big outlier. When if you look, go back to like 2000, I don't know, 2010, even 2005, you could see this steady growth coming and it's been happening totally. over a, over a long term. It hasn't been a spike at all. So I think, no. the, the yeah, the demand is still going to be there for sure. Well, anything about hip camp or private campground model or anything else that I didn't touch on that uh, you'd like to add before we sign off here? Yeah, you know, I think I think we've touched on a lot of great things today. I think the one thing I I just want to highlight a bit more that I think is such an important part of camping on on private land and and something that often people don't think about, but for me is so central to why I'm I'm so passionate about this business is when you are camping or glamping or or staying in your RV on private land, you are directly contributing to a future for that land that is more protected and less developed. And I think using outdoor recreation as this incentive system and economic engine to support all these wonderful people who have land and keeping it and hopefully improving the quality of that land and its ability to support not just humans, but all sorts of life is really, really important right now. I cannot stress that enough. We're seeing such dramatic drop-offs in biodiversity um, with extinction rates, everything from pollinators to birds to amphibians. And I think the more we can look at all of this incredible private land around us as places to play and get outside, the easier we are making it for all of those landowners to also say, cool, I won't, you know, clear cut this part of the forest or, you know, I'm going to make sure to keep this river clean for the salmon and, and for the people who want to swim in it. And so I just think using recreation as a way to support conservation and the protection of land is something we need to all understand and, and really keep building on as we head into the future here. Well, once again, I've been talking with Alyssa Rovasio, the founder and CEO of the website HipCamp. Thanks so much for your time, Alyssa. Thanks, Zach. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com slash explore along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council, 
AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.